Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the impeachment trial driving a wedge between MAGA Republicans and traditional conservative Republicans as Trump's ally, the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, faces 16 articles of impeachment in 4,000 pages of evidence. Joining us is Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Then, with over 60 environmental activists who have been protesting against the so-called Cop City training facility in Atlanta, charged by Georgia's Attorney General under the same RICO statute the Atlanta DA is prosecuting Trump and his allies with for trying to steal the 2020 election, we will speak with Will Potter, distinguished journalist in residence and civil rights fellow at the University of Denver. An investigative journalist whose work is focused on social justice and environmental movements, and attacks on civil rights post-9-11. He was the first investigative journalist to be named a TED Senior Fellow, and his TED Talks on anti-protest laws and secret prisons have been viewed millions of times. He's the author of Green is the New Red, an insider's account of a social movement under siege. Then finally, we'll look into the possibility of another war breaking out between Armenia and Azerbaijan, as the Kremlin moves its support away from democratic Armenia to the oil-rich corrupt dynastic Aliyev regime in Baku, leading to the possibility that the US and NATO could become more involved in defending Armenia in the way they are defending Ukraine. Joining us is Ronald Sunni, Distinguished University Professor of History and Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan and Emeritus Professor of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago. His books include... The Soviet Experiment, Russia, the USSR, and the Successor States, and They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide. And joining us now from Austin, Texas, is Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's also a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeremy Suri. Good to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeremy. And democracy is not so much on trial in Texas as, as the Attorney General, who is a far-right supporter of Donald Trump. And to some extent, this has split the Republicans. Trump, of course, is claiming that Paxton is being railroaded by radical left Democrats, which is hard to believe since uh, he's being tried by (laughs) the Republicans uh, who have a supermajority in both the House and Senate. So let's start with the possibility of fissures between the Republican Party, given uh, that this guy is throwing his lot behind Trump and Trump's throwing his lot behind Paxton. 
Yeah, so I think that's the right place to start, Ian. I think uh, what we're seeing here is that we have two groups of very, very conservative Republicans in the state of Texas. One group um, is very serious about pursuing conservative policies, for example, restricting access to abortion, um, creating school choice so people can choose where they want to send their students to school, things of that sort. They are policy people. They have a conservative policy agenda. Then there's another group of conservatives who are much more interested in just seizing power, much more interested in uh, sowing chaos, much more interested in supporting the cult of a strong leader. And those two groups, which were allied, are now fighting each other because the people who are serious about conservative policy believe that the MAGA people, the people who are just about power, are undermining the very policies that the conservatives want. But in Paxton's case, he seems to be a kind of a reworking of Samuel Johnson's famous adage that uh, patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. In Paxton's case, it's religious religion is the last refuge of the scoundrel. <laughs> yeah, no, no one really believes that uh, Ken Paxton is a man who is, uh, you know, a, a prophet of religious faith. He hides behind that, as your question implies. The the defense of Paxton is that this is power for the right people and we should support our guy because he's helping us do things for ourselves. Um, he, he's similar to Ted Cruz in this sense in that he has supporters, Ian, but no one really likes him. You never hear anyone saying they're drawn to his personality. For, for strange reasons, people seem to like Donald Trump of certain kinds, but, but, but people don't like uh, Paxton. People support him because they think he's helping their real estate deals or helping them get power in some other way. But he came to power as a result of support from the Christian right, who he's been pandering to ever since, along with the West Texas right-wing oil money. And again, the division here is interesting because, in effect, the defense amongst Christians for supporting Paxton is the same as the defense among so-called Christians supporting Trump, right? That yes. he, he may he, he may have extramarital affairs, but he, he delivers for us. Right, precisely. That, and that's what I mean by this being about power. Um, no one can look at his life or Donald Trump's life and say these are model Christian lives. Uh, it's more that he's protecting power for our group of Christians and not for those other people, whoever those other people are, who are not our group of Christians. But the televised impeachment trial has just begun, right? It's started yes. on Tuesday, and it's going to go from, what, almost to the end of the month, isn't it? That's what the uh, lieutenant governor, who also now serves as the presiding judge in the Senate, which has become an impeachment court, um, he's predicting that this will go at least until the end of the month. That's based on the number of witnesses and, quite frankly, the proliferation of evidence that is being presented of Ken Paxton's corruption. Well, that's going to get pretty extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, the guy is so brazen. I mean, he, having this extramarital affair, and then he broke it off very publicly in 2019 and said he'd recommitted to his wife. And then he had his buddy, this real estate guy, Paul, hire her, bring her back to Austin, set her up in a condo, and he... 
and Paxson had this secret Uber account that he would sneak off and see her and, and also <laughs> meet in clandestine ways with Paul, who who is under FBI investigation. And, you know, so much for recommitting to his marriage. Yeah, so yeah. all this stuff's coming out, right? That That's true. I mean, a lot of this stuff w- was known before. I mean, this is one of the cases uh, similar to uh, Donald Trump, where the the horrors are things we already know. What's new is that we're actually seeing the evidence for what we already knew. And um, that's that's the case here. What what's been particularly damning and new so far in this trial that we will see more of is not just the evidence of his misbehavior, but those high level Republicans who were very close to Paxton who believed he had crossed the line, who resigned. So today we had testimony from Jeff Mateer, who is considered an uber conservative, who was the number two person in the um, Texas attorney general's office. Uh, This is a man who no one doubts his conservative credentials. This was his dream job, he said. And he resigned because of stories like the one you just recounted, the level of corruption. As he said today, he believed that the attorney general was using the office just as a platform for his own personal needs and desires. And again, these are words coming from high level conservatives who were close to Paxton, who resigned because the corruption was so bad. And this guy you just mentioned, uh, he's been working with the FBI, hasn't he? That's correct. So he went as a whistleblower to the FBI. Eight of Ken Paxton's deputies, all the top people in the attorney general's office, all of whom he appointed, all of whom were conservative Republicans, all resigned and went to the FBI to report levels of illegal corruption, including what you just described, Ian, using the attorney general's office to help hide an affair, to help finance an affair, to help pay off people like real estate developers who were helping Paxton personally in one way or another. And they also, because of his relationship with this this developer, Paul, he managed to hire some inexperienced attorney to help out Paul, right, to go after Paul's enemies. That's correct. Put him, put him on the, the attorney general's payroll. Correct. That, 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 that is one of the things that was discussed today. Again, much of this was known in the press before, uh, but there's no reason others would be following it so closely. What Jeff Mateer, who was uh, Paxton's deputy before he resigned, what he recounted today was his learning as the person who was running the office day to day that the attorney general had gone around him and hired someone who did not work for the attorney general's office to investigate the attorney general's friend with the clear supposition that this person would be favorable to the person that was being investigated and that this was done outside of procedure, um, clearly to try to set up a favorable person in this role. But what I don't understand about this, Jeremy, is that this this has been going on forever. And just before Paxson was first elected as attorney general, he'd previously been in the Texas legislature, in the House, and, and in the Senate, um, he was elected, as I mentioned earlier, with support from the Christian evangelicals and West Texas right-wing oil money. But he also had been charged with security fraud. And how come that case has just been there, hovering in the background all these years? Well, I believe that the federal... Uh government, the Justice Department, was waiting until he was out of office. Uh, now that he has been 
removed uh, once he was impeached by the House in Texas under the rules of the Texas Constitution. If you're an impeached officer, even an elected officer, you are suspended from office. So he's actually not been in office for the past couple of months since he was impeached in the House awaiting his trial in the Senate. And since he was out of office, the Justice Department moved forward with that case. What triggered the Texas Republican Party to finally turn on Ken Paxton, or at least part of the party to turn on him. I think that the actual event that triggered this was when he negotiated a settlement with the eight members of the attorney general's office who resigned, the ones we just talked about, including Jeff Mateer, who's testifying today. He made a deal with them uh, where he would pay them $3 million for them, in, in essence, to keep their mouth shut. There was a lawsuit because they were whistleblowers and he had fired them, which is actually against the law in Texas and also against the law by federal statute. And he settled with them for $3 million, I think $3.3 million. And then he went to the legislature and wanted the legislature to pay the bill. That's so what that, actually triggered this. So that was a bridge too far, right? <laughs> that was a bridge too far, especially for those Republicans who are very conservative and actually don't want to spend money. I mean, he, he, he actually, you know, in a sense, crossed a Rubicon Many of these Republicans who are elected uh, in the state, they go to Austin, they come to the city, and they see their job to cut budgets. And this was actually going to spend state money to protect the corruption of the attorney general. You could see how for rural conservatives this would actually uh, be something they would not like. So you mentioned Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who is the presiding judge. And of course, curiously, in Texas, the Lieutenant Governor has more power than the Governor. He has, seems to have at least given something of an advantage to Paxton by not requiring to testify, right? That was his early ruling. Yes, that's correct. Um, that's true. Uh, on the other hand, um, he has so far done everything to uh, open the trial to as much evidence and as much presentation from the prosecution, which is in this case the House managers and their lawyers, as as possible. So Paxton's lawyers tried to get this all dismissed the first day, and that came nowhere near passing. Uh, most Republicans voted to proceed with the trial, and uh, so far, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has done everything he can to push the trial forward. So. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, you know, which which side he's on. That will really determine the outcome. Um, a, a large majority of the Republicans in the Senate um, follow the lead of the lieutenant governor. There are 12 Democrats in the Senate out of 31. So there have to be nine Republicans, not all Republicans, not even a majority, but nine Republicans who vote with the 12 Democrats to convict Paxton because there have to be 21 out of 30 votes. Uh, it's hard to imagine getting nine votes if, if Patrick is against it. But if Patrick supports conviction, they'll likely have enough votes to convict Paxton. And former Governor Rick Perry is is also, he's he's actually, I think he wrote an op-ed castigating Republicans who support Paxton in spite yes. of his evident corruption. And by extension, I suppose, it's the same people that support Trump. You know, it's the same yes. mentality. Um, And that's kind of surprising, right? Well, I think Rick Perry, like like former uh, U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, is trying to refurbish his reputation. And this is a way of doing that, right? Because you can say, well, I'm still very conservative, but I'm not that kind of conservative. So do you think, though, that after 
this going on till the end of the month with all this dirty laundry being, and, and it's really tacky stuff. And the guy is such a sleaze, it's unbelievable. And people, as you say, they've known about it forever, but I guess it's different when you actually hear it in, in the way that these hearings lay this stuff out, uh, particularly coming from these conservative Republican senators in Texas, one of whom, of course, is Paxton's wife, right? Angela. Yes. She's sitting there listening to all this sleaze <laughs> that her yes. husband engaged in, uh, but she can't vote, right? That's correct. She counts in the denominator, so there are, there are 31 senators. She does not get to vote, but her vote still counts out of the total 31, so that's why they still need 21 votes to uh, convict. You need two-thirds. So in a sense, she's a, no, she, she's a vote against conviction, but she doesn't get to vote. But she is required to sit there and listen to all of it. <laughs> So, but am I right in suggesting that the accumulation of this will be devastating by the end of the day, right? Yes. I, I think the longer the trial goes on and the more evidence that's presented, uh, the more likely that Paxton will be convicted and thrown out of office because it just exposes, as you said, the level of corruption and sleaze and the easiest way for uh, Republicans to separate themselves from this is to say this is only about Paxton. That's not about what our party is. And so we're going to get rid of him. And that would allow the governor then to appoint a different Republican as the interim attorney general. And there would be a new election in 2024. And could this be in any way a kind of bellwether for Republican support for Trump in as much as Trump is really throwing his lot in with Paxton? He started the, the free Ken Paxton movement from the, the persecution from the radical left Democrats <laughs> when it's, the whole trial is uh, being conducted by conservative Republicans, right? Yes, I, I think we have crossed uh, a turning point here. Um, it's not as if people are going to wake up tomorrow morning and realize that Trump uh, was a criminal and a horrible person in ways they didn't before. But slowly but surely, what you're seeing is the erosion of protection from prosecution and the ability that Trump and Paxton had for a long time to say that everything that was said about them was made up by those on the left. Paxton is still saying that. But you can't – no one believes that when they see the, the dyed-in-the-wool Republicans who are the ones in the Senate and the House who are saying he's corrupt, his closest advisors who are Republican. And so what does that do? I think it does begin to pull support away, especially among moderates and independents. It begins to pull support away from Trump and Paxton and that group. And I think that matters enormously uh, in elections. Trump will always get – you know, 30% of the vote, 35% of the vote, probably a bit more among you know, core Republicans. But moderate Republicans and independents are going to be less and less likely to vote for him. And, and I think that's, that's significant in our elections. So, and is this real estate developer who the FBI are investigating, uh, who's Paxton has gone to bat for forever, um, is he going to testify, Nate Paul? I don't know if he's going to testify, but he himself is going to jail. He, he is not only under investigation, he's been indicted. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, Paxton, as soon as this is done, however this finishes in the Senate, there's a federal trial waiting for him. Um, so we're in a new world here, Ian, where uh, these corrupt uh, right-wing actors who had escaped prosecution are now facing prosecution from Paxton to Trump. And, and again, I think that matters. Uh, by most surveys, you know, Americans don't necessarily believe the other party 
But most Americans think the criminal justice system, it kind of, it's kind of fair. They, they believe it. It matters if someone's been indicted and convicted. But in Paul's case, has, what is at the heart of this peculiar relationship these two have? They had their secret rendezvous and the secret Uber accounts, and he set up his mistress uh, with a job and a condo so that uh, Paxson could visit her after having yeah, yeah. Yeah. recommitted to his wife and all that stuff. So um, is, is there any sense of what... What was what? What kind of compact these two had? What oh, kind I of think relationship? It, I mean, it was, it, it, well, it's money. It's money. I mean, um, Nate Paul is one of you know many many real estate developers in Austin. Austin's a place you make a lot of money as a real estate developer, and he was trying to get various advantages from the attorney general's office by paying him off. And they they developed a close a close alliance uh, in that way. It's like many of these people, like Roger Stone and others in Trump's orbit. This was part of the corrupt court that uh, the attorney general had. Hmm. Well, uh, stay tuned. I guess you're watching it while you're working, right? I guess yes. a lot of people in Texas are watching it, right? I, I think so. I mean, it's interesting. The crowds, the in-person crowds were smaller than people expected, in particular, fewer of Paxton supporters. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think there's also uh, people are feeling disgusted by this. They're ashamed of it. This is not the image Texas wants to portray to the world. And I think that that works against Paxton. Well, the truth can bite occasionally. Yes, I I thank you for joining us, uh, Jeremy Surrey. My pleasure, Ian. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into how 60 environmental activists who have been protesting against the so-called Cop City training facility in Atlanta have been charged by Georgia's Attorney General under the same RICO statutes that the Atlanta DA is prosecuting Trump and his allies with for trying to steal the 2020 elections. Cowboys ain't easy to love and they're harder to hold They'd rather give you a song than diamonds or gold Long star belt buckles and old faded Levi's And each night begins a new day If you don't understand him, he don't die young You'll probably just ride away Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys This morning I woke up in a curfew Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Will Potter, a distinguished journalist in residence and civil rights fellow at the University of Denver, an investigative journalist whose work is focused on social justice and environmental movements and attacks on civil rights post-9-11. He was the first investigative journalist to be named a TED Senior Fellow, and his TED Talks on anti-protest laws and secret prisons have been viewed millions of times. And he's the author of Green is the New Red, an insider's account of a social movement under siege. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Potter. Thank you, Ian. So, Will, what do you make of more than 60 activists have just uh, who've been challenging this so-called cop city down 
and the outskirts of Atlanta have now been charged under the Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, known as RICO, the very same statutes that Atlanta prosecutors are using against uh, Donald Trump and his allies for trying to steal the 2020 election. So I don't see much comparison there. One seems to be about criminal acts to steal an election. The other one seems to be about political protests. But how does it strike you? Well, I was expecting these charges to come down like so many of us were, um, but reading the indictment and especially, like you said, Ian, have, uh, seeing this in contrast to the other major RICO case that's taking place in Georgia right now uh, with former President Trump is still quite shocking. Um, it's important to remember that these come on the heels of sweeping domestic terrorism charges against the protesters who have been trying to stop Cop City, a uh, $90 million facility for militarizing police that is being proposed and, and looks like will be built um, outside of Atlanta. And so this is really a continued escalation of tactics by the state, by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and prosecutors as this movement continues to gain uh, power and um, attention from ever-widening circles about this facility. Um, that's kind of the backdrop where we see these charges being released right now. So just a, a brief historical perspective. The George Floyd killing saw lots of protests in Georgia and in Atlanta, and then that was uh, followed by the shooting of a 26-year-old black man, Rashad Brooks, that did spark a lot of protests. And then in September of 2021, the city officials in Atlanta accelerated this push for this training center, now called Cop City. And in the summer of 2022, environmental activists began to occupy the area, calling themselves forest offenders camping in the woods near the Cop City site, which is an old uh, prison farm that had been reclaimed by nature. And then in January of 2023, a forest offender, a 26-year-old Venezuelan, was shot 57 times, uh, killed during a law enforcement raid on the campsite. And that's accelerated things. And as you mentioned, now they've charged them with domestic terrorism. Uh, and in May of 2023, police and Georgia Bureau of Investigation agents raided a building of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which were raising bail and legal defense funds for the protesters, and they were arrested. And that's prompted a lot of pushback from civil libertarians. Also, it was criticized by the two Georgia senators, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. And now it looks like the authorities and the state and Governor Kemp have accelerated their war on the protesters through this uh, now RICO charges against over 60 of the protesters. So is anything left out there in, in, in sketching the history of this situation? No, I think that covers it quite well. Um, a couple things I might add to help flesh it out even more. In this RICO indictment, and in general with the government's statements about these protest campaigns, they've often been depicted as anarchists and extremists. If you look, though, at what they're being charged with and what this indictment talks about, 
Um, the picture they're describing is quite a bit different. Um, these are people that have run childcare facilities so that protesters with children can still participate. They've had free food. Um, they've done community outreach. They're working re with religious groups. They're doing ballot initiatives. And in the same campaign, however, there have been people that have done things like burn bulldozers and get into confrontations with police. And that's really what was, I think, kind of missing in some of the um, description about what's happening in Cop City is the government now is really trying to argue that all of those people are the same. And what we see in this RICO indictment is an attempt to really paint them all with the same brush um, with very serious charges. So have there been any, I mean, they killed that Venezuelan kid, shot him 47 times. Has anybody on the police side been injured or by these protesters? I mean, it's no. true that the more radical ones have burned, trashed bulldozers and gone after cops' cars, etc. But it seems like there's a major disparity here between shooting somebody 57 times and what evidence do the police have of these people being terrorists which they've been charged with. Uh, and I think that's exactly uh, the point, the, this disproportionate response, like you said. Um, Tortuguita, the name of the, the protester who was shot repeatedly by police, also was shown in an autopsy to have uh, their hands raised. And so what we see, though, is the way that the state and prosecutors are talking about this as if this forest defense campaign and civil rights campaign are all a bunch of violent extremists out in the forest that are attacking police and you know eager to set things on fire and wanting to bring about the downfall of society. And if you think that's hyperbolic, um, that's exactly how the indictment reads. It talks about uh, their belief in uh, anarchism and collectivism, uh, what they're hoping for a better world. I mean, it's it's described in these sweeping terms in this way. Um, but to answer your question, no, there there's no proportionality at all. I mean, in this protest campaign, like so many others that I've written about over the years, there are people who do... Uh, illegal things like sabotage or even get into confrontations with police at protests. Um, there are people who do things kind of in between, like locking their necks to logging equipment and willingly getting arrested. And there are people that are working completely above board. And this campaign overwhelmingly uh, have been those latter two camps. And the few incidents that the police are pointing to about property destruction or confrontations with police um, are, are frankly a drop in the bucket of what we're talking about with this campaign. Uh, and the indictment, I think, reflects that, unfortunately. Well, it still remains that 42 of these people have been, demonstrators have, have been labeled domestic terrorists under a 2017 state statute. And now there's the 60-plus have been uh, brought in on RICO charges. Meanwhile, the cop city itself, its expenses almost doubled, yet the mm. city council still votes to continue doing it. Who's, who's the lobby behind it? Why are they going against uh, public opinion and throwing money into this project that clearly has you know, been the, the target of a lot of protest? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. I mean, with so many of these 
repressive campaigns that I've reported on internationally, you have to follow that money line back to the proponents. And in this case, it's from a few sources. Um, there's heavy investment from private corporations and industry uh, connected to the um, police organization in Atlanta. Com companies like Home Depot have also been protested uh, throughout the com uh, country for their ties to the training facility and the development of it. But I think the answer is a little bit more broad than that also. Um, I don't think this is just about the specific corporations and politicians that are financially connected to Cop City. I think the threat that they see in these activists is much bigger than that. Um, I think it speaks to kind of a connection right now that many people are making between environmental issues and other social justice issues, including civil rights and these rampant police shootings that we've all seen over the last um, you know, decades. And they're doing it really concrete ways. I mean, this is a, a defend the forest type of campaign that's also working with um, and working on alongside church and community groups, civil rights groups, Black Lives Matter groups, um, all in tandem. And so I think that's, in my mind, when I'm taking a bigger picture look at what's happening right now in Atlanta, I think that's how we begin to explain it, of why this uh, protest campaign is getting such a um, kind of dystopian level of repression when they have never even harmed a human being and are not alleged to. Right, but the disparity here is you've got legitimate protesters being labelled as terrorists, and yet you've got real terrorists like these militias, like the Proud Boys and others, right. running around showing their assault rifles in public, shaking down and intimidating uh, government officials, as I say, if they'd done threatening to kill the governor of Michigan and other state officials. Mm -hmm. So th these militia characters and the right-wing people like like the Proud Boys, it seems that they get treated with kid gloves and allowed to literally threaten mm -hmm. with military-style weapons. And these other unarmed protesters belonging to various groups, including church groups, uh, label terrorists. I mean, it's clearly a double standard. It, it's not only a, a double standard, I think you put it quite well, but I would go even further and say, in my research, uh, I found that over decades, um, from the 1970s through the 2000s and into the present day, um, the FBI has repeatedly and deliberately ignored the rise of right-wing violence in this country. We're talking anti-abortion extremists, militia groups, white supremacists and white nationalist groups, and the rise of um, militias that kind of dabble in each or many of those areas. And there's a government paper trail that shows that the inspector general of the Justice Department sent a letter about this to the FBI and said, these priorities, you know, you focusing on environmentalists, as the number one domestic terrorism threat and not focusing on these violent right-wing groups is gonna pe put people's safety at risk. It's a public safety issue. Um, and they refuse to change their policies. And so I, I, I try to emphasize to people that 
you know, when you hear about what's happening in Cop City, it might be tempting to say, oh, you know, I don't know if I agree with these protesters or um, I don't like what they did and certain examples or whatever. But keep in mind that, that the FBI and Georgia police are choosing to focus on this and not choosing to focus their resources on violent right-wing groups who actually want to exterminate people uh, based on their race or their sexual sexuality. Well, what are the chances then of, I mean, obviously they're throwing the book at the protesters, and what can happen in terms of other efforts to shut down Cop City? I believe that the activists are trying to stop the Cop City through lawsuits, and they want to place it on on the referendum in, in the November ballot. Is that likely to work? In other words, what what's going to stop this juggernaut now that the police, now that and the governor and uh, the attorney general uh, and the whole state is throwing the book at these 60-plus protesters? Well, that's my question exactly. My question for the city council and for the governor's office um, and for others involved in, in pushing these tactics right now is how much public support is it going to take? Um, this movement has not only engaged in the letter writing and the, you know, having throngs of people at city council meetings to the point uh, of saying that some of the biggest turnouts in the history of the uh, the governing body have been during this protest campaign. Um, they're collecting tens of thousands of signatures. I mean, you can't move around the city of Atlanta without seeing the evidence of this campaign and the public uh, opposition to Cop City. And so it really, you know, it, it raises, I think, some very uh, troubling questions about the state of our democracy right now and the potential for democratic change. Because if the message that the city council and the governor's office appear to be sending is that despite this overwhelmingly uh, overwhelming turnout of public opposition, um, despite following all, you know, jumping through all the hoops, in getting the tens of thousands of signatures, um, they are still willing to try to throw the book at these protesters. Um, and I think it sends a, a really dangerous message right now of, you know, if governing officials don't want to hear the message of the cop city protesters, at what point will they be heard? And what does that mean for activists thinking about um, the risks and potential of uh, some of these campaigns right now? Well, Will Potter, I thank you for joining us, and we'll stay in touch, I hope. I hope so, too. Thank you very much. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at the possibility of another war breaking out between Armenia and Azerbaijan as the Kremlin moves its support away from democratic Armenia to the oil-rich, corrupt, dynastic Aliyev regime in Baku. Jam!
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ronald Sooner, who's a Distinguished University Professor of History and Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, and Emeritus Professor of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago. His books include The Soviet Experiment, Russia, the USSR, and the Successor States, and They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ronald Sunni. I'm happy to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's not out of the question that there could be a, a genocide in uh, the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is cut off from the rest of Armenia because the corridor has been closed by the Armenians and the Russian peacekeepers were supposed to open it up. But they appear to be in collusion with Azerbaijan, and Aliyev, the dynastic leader of Azerbaijan, has made threatening uh, remarks about the fate of the, I think, what, 120,000? I'm not sure the full number of, of Armenians in the enclave, that if they sort of don't get out and bend their necks, I think is what he said, uh, something worse could happen. So what, what do you think is going to happen there? I think, first of all, we have to make a distinction between the word genocide, a very, very volatile term and a very important one, and ethnic cleansing. Genocide is really mass killing, mass killing of a people. And, and that could happen. It's less likely to happen than ethnic cleansing. That is what Azerbaijan seems to want to do is end the Armenian presence in any part of Azerbaijan. Basically, Armenian settlements in cities like Sumgayit and Baku have long since left. The last uh, enclave, or as the as Armenians often call it, an exclave, is Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh. 120,000 Armenians, that's the figure that we, we think is there still. Those people may in fact be driven out. Uh, Aliyev, the dictator of Azerbaijan claims that they can stay if they all become loyal Azerbaijani citizens. That is essentially give up their autonomy, give up their even national identity. So what I would predict is that if things don't change in the short run, if in fact uh, some other powers or Russia returns in force to the area, the Armenians in Karabakh may be lost. But it looks as though the Russians are siding with Azerbaijan and deepening their military and economic ties with Aliyev. For example, there's a new railroad being built from Russia through Azerbaijan into Iran to ship armaments now because the Russians are relying upon Iranian drones, etc. And conversely, there's a U.S. military exercise taking place in uh, Armenia next week. So what's happening in the broader sense? Is Armenia drifting out of the Russian fold into the NATO-US fold? Things are shifting and shifting very radically in the South Caucasus. First of all, you're perfectly correct that uh, Russians are getting closer to Azerbaijan and the gap between Armenians and, and Russians are, is widening. There's no question about that. Why? Because the Armenians who have been dependent on Russians for so long, and in fact, uh, from the, their defeat in the Second Karabakh War, 
in the fall of 2020, they relied on Russian uh, goodwill, in a sense, to keep the peace and to have uh, peacekeepers there to separate the two sides. Russians have fulfilled none of these obligations. Basically, uh, Putin's Russia is a Russia that's suspicious of certain kinds of regimes. It prefers more autocratic, more dictatorial, more stable regimes. It's not very interested, and even it's slightly uh, frightened of, democratic regimes, regimes that seem to them, in their estimation, more unstable. So what is Armenia? Armenia is a democratic state. The government of Nikol Pashinyan came to power through a revolt on the streets, overthrowing an old oligarchy, a kind of mafia of old politicians. So on the one side, you have a democratic Armenia and a dictator, dictatorial, or you could say sultanistic, uh, hereditary regime of Ilham Aliyev in Baku. And the Russians know what they can expect from Ilham, but they don't know what they can expect from Nikol. And Nikol and Armenians are extraordinarily dis not only discontented, disaffected, disillusioned by the Russians, and they've now turned to uh, other. They're looking for other help. There are uh, European Union monitors on the frontier who have told us, in fact, that Azerbaijani troops have made incursions into Armenia. They've crossed the international border and are standing in Armenian territory. And now they're turning uh, to the Americans as well. America is far away from Armenia, but there's plans to have a kind of low level military cooperation, a little exercise. There'll only be about 85 American soldiers there uh, in another week. So you see the, the whole situation, the balance, the role of Russia in this area, since Russia is bogged down in the mud of Ukraine, is changing. But how quickly can it change? Because if Azerbaijan is feeling its oats and wants to extinguish the Armenian enclave in Nagorno-Karabakh and they're probing the borders with Armenia, it looks as if Armenia needs some allies pretty quickly, doesn't it? Armenia definitely needs allies very quickly. It is dependent on Russia. Russia is now completely uh, undependable. Uh, their other ally is Iran, but Iran is not going to cross the border and is 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 probably ineffectual. And the the American the Armenians have to kind of decide: uh, either you go with the Americans or you go with whom? With Russia and Iran, which is on the other side, antagonistic, hostile to America. So it's a very delicate delicate moment there. The greatest fear, and you can hear this in Yerevan. I was there about a month ago. Uh, is that Azerbaijan has greater ambitions. That is, they already have maps of a greater Azerbaijan. They consider the Armenian Republic to be Western Azerbaijan. And there's a possibility that they could, in fact, move quickly and try to move into Armenia, taking some swath of its territory, perhaps creating its own corridor from Azerbaijan proper so, so, uh, southward, toward its uh, its exclave of Nakhichevan. So uh, anything could happen in the short run, uh, given that the Russians are not doing what they had agreed to do 
and to protect that that border uh, from any Azerbaijani advancement. And that enclave that you just mentioned, it's up against, it's in the west, right, up against the Turkish border, and it's completely corrupt, isn't it? It's run, I think it's run by one mafia family. Well, it was actually run by the Aliyev family, so... Oh, there, there you go, the same mafia family. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, is a is a large area. Uh, there used to be Armenians there as well. In fact, historically, the Armenians were, were there in the Middle Ages. There were Armenian cemeteries, Armenian churches, Armenian monuments. All of those, by the way, have been destroyed by the Azerbaijanis. In other words, the Azerbaijanis are doing kind of archaeological destruction. They're trying to eliminate any trace of the material life of Armenians in Nakhichevan. Uh, and there was some kind of agreement uh, made after the defeat in the fall of 2020 between Armenia and Azerbaijan that there would be some access from Azerbaijan proper, Republic of Azerbaijan, to this autonomous area, Nakhichevan, and that access or corridor, that's one of the terms that's used, would have to run through Armenia. That's been a, contents, a contested question, uh, and both sides uh, differ on what they, they might get. One of the reasons that Azerbaijan uh, is blocking uh, 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 Nagorno-Karabakh from Armenia, blocking the Lachin corridor, uh, that lifeline is because they want, perhaps, I'm speculating here, to use that as a bargaining chip to force Armenia to agree to a corridor from Azerbaijan to Nakhichevan. So the whole situation you see in, is quite uh, fluid right now. Um, even in the last couple of days, with the Armenia moving uh, toward the Americans, the Americans... Uh, being in, more interested in Armenia. It turns out, by the way, and this is something I learned in Armenia a month ago, that America's own Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken, is, for whatever reasons, very interested in this question and very concerned about the situation in Armenia and the Lachin Corridor and so forth, perhaps seeing it as an opportunity to replace Russia in the South Caucasus with the American, uh, uh, some kind of American role there. Uh, whatever the situation is, uh, you can see that, in fact, we don't, we, we can't predict what might happen, but we better keep our eyes on it because something is shifting, shifting very fast. And Secretary of State Blinken, of course, is now in Kiev, where uh, the wife of the Armenian prime minister is going to participate in a summit of the first ladies and gentlemen in Kiev on the 6th of September, which happens to be today. So what's your sense of that shift? There's no question that that's going to irritate Putin. Absolutely. Um, Armenia never supported Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Armenia is a member of a kind of association of post-Soviet states. Uh, even Pashinyan, not too long ago, uh, was chair of that association. Uh, but it never agreed to the aggression of Putin against Ukraine. Uh, and now the, the Pashinyan government seems to be moving even further and talking about, and this is what the representation of his wife in Kiev means, 
they're talking about aid to uh, Kiev, aid to Ukraine. What aid Armenia can give in its desperate situation uh, is probably merely symbolic. But the gesture, the gesture that she's there, the gesture that th th they might give some kind of aid, at least symbolic support, and the even more meaningful shift to having some kind of military exercises with about 85 Americans in Armenia, these are pretty significant shifts. And certainly the Kremlin, uh, as uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov has indicated, and as Putin's spokesman Peskov uh, indicated, uh, they're concerned about this. They don't like losing one of their most loyal allies, uh, Armenia, uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, now to the other side, to the Americans. So what's the religious component here? Or, or I guess a better question is, why did the Azerbaijanis hate the uh, Armenians so much and want to kill them? I mean, obviously, the dictator is distracting the people uh, from the wholesale theft of the country. But that's been going on for decades. This mafia family has been running Azerbaijan forever. So what explains the... And, of course, Turkey is an ally of Azerbaijan, and they supplied them with the drones that were very effective in how they were able to win the uh, 2020 war that you mentioned. So what's the source of this animus? I, uh, if you want to look at the origins of the conflict over Karabakh and the, the fact that after the, in the late Soviet period and certainly after the fall of the Soviet Union, these two countries came to loggerheads and opened warfare, uh, I wouldn't emphasize necessarily religion. That is, it's true that Armenia is a historically Christian nation. Uh, Armenians believe they were the first country state to adopt Christianity way back in the early fourth century. And Azerbaijan is historically a Shi Muslim country. But remember that for 70 years, these two countries were under uh, Soviet uh, rule. They they were part of a of an of a atheistic state and religion uh, was diminished in both of these countries. It's come up somewhat more in Armenia than in Azerbaijan. This was basically a, the, uh, a conflict about territory and who would dominate in the Western areas of Azerbaijan, that is Nagorno-Karabakh, which had been a, a, a this exclave where 90% of the population in the early Soviet years was Armenia, and another still 75% of, of the population of what we now call Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh was Armenian at the end of the Soviet period. And that area wanted to be autonomous and eventually even independent or join Armenia. And the Azerbaijanis, of course, opposed losing that area, which was legally and in terms of international law, part of Azerbaijan. They weren't, They were, did not want to lose that to the Armenians. Armenians won the first Karabakh war in the uh, mid-1990s. There was an armistice, which was relatively successful for nearly 30 years, that was brokered by the Russians under Boris Yeltsin. But Armenians also expanded their control over parts of Azerbaijan and eventually drove out about a million Azerbaijanis from areas outside of Nagorno-Karabakh. And there were dreams then of Armenians 
to in a sense become another Israel, to uh, expand the state uh, through ethnic cleansing and to uh, uh, settle Armenians there and, and form this idea of a greater Armenia. And that was simply a kind of imperial overreach. It was impossible ever to achieve that. There weren't Armenians uh, ready to go to that buffer zone at any time. Uh, and meanwhile, in those 30 years, nearly 30 years from the mid 90s to 2020, Azerbaijan, a rich country, a country many times the size in population of Armenia, a country that has oil and gas, which the whole world wants, uh, was building itself up, was becoming richer, and was using those riches to build an army to fight against Armenia and regain those territories that they believe are part of their national uh, patrimony. And eventually allied with Turkey, who supplied them with drones, and by the way, but allied with Israel, which is uh, pro-Azerbaijani because Azerbaijan is against Iran and Iran is a major enemy as conceived by Israel. Israel as well as Turkey supported the Azerbaijanis and they won a quick victory in 44 days in the autumn of 2020. And that's where the conflict stands now. And as I mentioned to you earlier, Ian, it's, it's on a very much of a knife's edge at the moment. And one doesn't know as things move around which side of that knife's edge uh, uh, it's going to, people are going to fall into or far from or whatever the metaphor is. I thank you for joining us, Ronald Sunni. My pleasure. It was a wonderful conversation. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone One more light goes out in the